This week's episode contains content that may be triggering for some listeners. There's mention of suicide. Nothing graphic, of course, but it plays an important part in today's story. It's okay if you need to skip this one. Do what's right for you. This is Unsilent, a speak series from No Stigmas that champions mental health advocacy and challenges the stigmas that prevent people from getting the help they need. I'm Eli Lawson, a producer for the show. This week, I'll be having a conversation with Ashley, a teacher and mother. We'll hear about Ashley's home culture and the stigma that surrounded her decades-long battle with depression. But we'll also see how Ashley's journey radically shifted and how she became an advocate for teachers and mental health. If you want to learn more or contact us, visit nostigmas.org. Don't face it alone. Be unsilent. Just a little about you as we, as we kind of jump into this. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Um, yeah, I'll start with that. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm from and grew up and ended up moving back here to uh, South Louisiana. And um, so real small knit community, you know, just um, real conservative area. Uh, so yeah, as you know, my brother is who kind of hooked this up. Um, and so my parents, um, or no longer, they're not together anymore. They're both remarried, divorced and remarried. And so my brother and I have two stepsisters on one side and two stepbrothers on the other side. So it's a, it's definitely a blended, uh, family dynamic for sure, both ways. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, just grew up like staunch, um, conservative, everything, political, religious views, the whole nine yards. So, um, every, you know, it's, pretty streamlined childhood in that regard so yeah big family yeah is lance is he like a biological brother yes or or he is okay yeah he and i are about seven years apart and we look nothing like alike so it always trips people up because they're like how are you guys related like well we are so genetics (laughs) that we can verify (laughs) so you mentioned um it being more of a conservative environment is that yeah is this playing into something that uh yeah. Yes. Yes. So I say that to say, like down uh, where we are from, it's um, it's just now becoming more, I guess, an open dialogue and less taboo to even discuss mental health um, at all. But in our year, it was always, you know, the the we're Catholic, I'm Cajun, you know, that's just generally the population that we're in, and so there's kind of that unspoken expectation I guess like in um the you know just the communities that we grew up in that well you know whatever comes your way you're just you just deal with it we're strong we're resilient that's the kind of people we are and we just deal with it and I get it because that's you know um our area does get it goes through a lot I mean we're we're not Louisiana yeah yeah we're not right right so whether it be the weather or it's um, our educational system is really not up to par. Our, you know, job market is not up to par. So, I mean, like, there's a lot of things that we go through in community that's like, yeah, dude, we really do have to work hard for what we have. And um, and if it doesn't come easy, well, you know, there isn't this, okay, let's process it. It's more of just hunker down and push through. It's kind of right. the mentality of the, of where we're from. Um, so it made it really difficult for, it made it really difficult to not be 
perfect, I guess, you know? Um, so, I mean, our family was really big on, um, you know, we we're growing up, both my brother and I both grew up with, you know, even though our parents weren't together at some point, they both instilled in us, a, you know, a love for learning. And so we were both on a track for college, university, you know, grad school, the whole nine yards. And it was never, oh, wow. it was like, Oh, you're going to college. There is no other alternative. So we really did grow up thinking that there was absolutely nothing to do after high school, except go to a university and it had to be a four year university. So it baffled me because I had friends who were, you know, were like, no, I'm going to get out and go to trade school or I'm going to do this. I'm like, you can do that. I didn't even know you could There's do options. that. Yeah. There's what? Options. There's <laughs> to do. So it was just um, a lot of those moments as, you know, as I got older where it was like, Oh, this is out there and there's that. And um, so, I mean, I would say my brother traveled the world and I kind of stayed put, you know, and we both. Oh yeah. <laughs> we still in Louisiana? I am still in Louisiana. Yes. My husband actually um, is from here as well. So I'm married with four kids now. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so he he's from here and then he left here and lived in Missouri for a while for grad school. And then when we um, got married and had kids, we decided to come back home and be near, you know, extended relatives. And that's the thing. Families down here, multi-generation, um, the roots are really, really, really deep. So it's okay. not uncommon at all for families four generations to be living in the same community and the young ones help the older ones and vice versa. So that's just that's just kind of our culture. Yeah, it sounds much more uh like collective. Like yes. you know, your family's well being is much more yours. <laughs> yes. Not so there's a, lot, there's a lot of pressure in that. You know, there's a lot of pressure because it it wasn't really a a, a an experience growing up of my life was personal. It was more of my life is public. My life is for, you know, if one thing was happening in my life, then there were 20 other people that knew about it, you know? And I mean, oh, wow. there's other cultures that are like that. You know, um, I know a lot of Hispanic families experience that, the Greek families experience that. So, I mean, it's not an uncommon thing. Um, we're just in a culturally dense area and the Cajun people around here, that's just how we've always lived. And so if you try to always say, you know, I was the first one to break the mold um, for like, I think ever really on, on my mom's side to move away from my family. And I only moved an hour away, you know, that's so, an hour. That's not even moving. Yeah. And I was like, I moved an hour away and you would have sworn that, you know, I was, I was really breaking a mold for my family. It was like, Oh my goodness. She's so far. I'm like, this is not far. This is so not far. Wow. So, yeah, it, it was a tough in that regard. I mean, we were, there were more benefits, I would say, because um, you had the family support. But then the downside was if you, you know, if you didn't have your stuff together, everybody knew it. So. I imagine that being difficult, you know, battling through some type of mental health thing. That yeah. doesn't sound like a very great environment to do it. No, it pretty much, um, it, it doesn't leave room for a whole lot of error and I can't fault, um, you know, it comes down to people I feel like are only, they, they only know what they've seen and they only know what they've allowed themselves to, to be exposed to. And so in regards to where I grew up, it was like, well, this is just not something that was spoken about. It was something that you dealt with on your own. It was way stigmatized still is. And it, it just never was a piece of, 
of conversation. So what ended up happening is on my my mother's side, there's a history of some severe mental health. And down the line, there were, um, you know, in the elderly generations, a few generations back, there was a lot of suicide that had happened. Um, that side of the family grew up in a rural community. I mean, like the outskirts of town. So um, it was hard. They were farmers. And um, so instead of dealing with any kind of, you know, pressure, I know one of my distant, you know, four or five generations back, you know, suffered a miscarriage. She never got over the miscarriage and she ended up committing suicide as a young mother. You know, it just wasn't something that you came up for air and said, I'm not okay. Um, and then on my dad's side, it, we have five generations of mental health um, challenges on that side. And every single generation, uh, with the exception of my brother and I, have they've all medicated with substance abuse. So, but on that side, they were more prominent in the community. They lived in town. They, um, they were well off with money. Um, they had a kind of a public uh, figure type of role in the community. So it was more of, no, we have to keep this in the closet. You, you know, if you have depression, oh, you can't let anybody see that. So we're going to keep that in the closet. Keep that public face. Yes, you have to keep the face. And so what ended up happening is several family members you know, in an effort to hide and to cope with the hiding, you know, just they became addicts, you know, and alcohol was just, um, it just swept through our family with a vengeance. And we lost a, a few family members to, uh, to alcohol abuse. And so, um, but it was the coping, you know, strategy of choice. <laughs> right. You've described this culture of just having to hunker down and just push through it. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. As you and I both know from mental health, that's it's not how it works. No, no, it's not how it works. And um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of my the backstory of uh, you know, I guess this the stage was set, um, you know, and then I often over the years have said, you know, I wish I could have experienced, um, you know, I say I wish I was stronger. I wish I had an, I, my brain functioned like a normal person. Or I found myself over the years, especially in college, wishing that, you know, I, that I didn't have depression, that I didn't suffer with anxiety. And like I wanted to be and I think we probably all go through those periods where we're like, man, can I just be normal? Can I just cope with stress in a normal way? Or can I just think of this in a normal way? And it wasn't, it, you know, what really helped begin my healing journey was accepting and having the self-compassion for saying, you know what? I never really got to see what that was like. I, I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't of a, of a, I don't have the back, the default to fall back on. Um, right. That allowed me the ability to explore if I wasn't okay. So, you know, it was like really kind of learning how to walk for the first time when I first started to, um, to come through to that, that healing side of things. That's good. Yeah. And I would, I would challenge that idea of normal because it's, you know, that's a really hard term to apply to humans in general. Like what even, what even is that? Right. Um, the truth is that a lot of people don't realize is that most of us struggle with some type of mental health, um, issue, whether it's anxiety or depression or, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. Um, so it's totally acceptable that you're going through that and, yeah, as you already mentioned, you don't have to feel any any shame for that. It's okay. Yeah. Where does um kind of this battle, this journey with depression, 
begin? Is there any like age or event that you can kind of not pinpoint, but yeah. Um, I remember, you know, of course, whenever you're young, you you don't really have the vocabulary for that. You know, you kind of trying to just do life as a, you know, young person, but I remember actually being in eighth grade, um, and just seriously, um, you know, having such terrible self-worth, um, and self-esteem issues that, you know, no matter, um, I found that I was, I was constantly trying to be perfect in all these other areas. So I was always the straight A student. I was always involved in whatever's happening on campus. I played sports growing up, you know, I was, and none of that, even as a, as a middle schooler was enough. And I remember visiting my, my middle school guidance counselor and telling her like, I don't feel right. Like I'm not, I don't see myself the way other people say that they see me, you know, and they just, it, there was a seed of self-hate, I think, that started then, um, and it just lingered and continued. So really from the end of eighth grade for me, almost up to my 10th grade year, I battled um, an eating disorder because I was determined, you know, well, if I can't control, um, you know, if I can't control this, that, or the other, and I'll, at the time, I will say that that was a really tumultuous time for my parents, um, and, and also watching my brother kind of seven years behind me, not have the reasoning capability as a, you know, a little one to journey through that, you know, process of divorce parents and that whole thing happening. Um, so it was a really tough time because I was trying to make sense of everything. And I still felt that um, responsibility to protect as an older sibling, um, to be to be an easy child for my parents going through the divorce, because if if I, if I were easier, then that made their situation easier. So I put a lot of pressure on myself. And so by the time I got to high school, you know, I was like, well, if I can't control all this stuff going on around me externally, well, I can control what I, how I see myself. And so in my mind, I had it set in my mind that in order to, to see myself in a positive light, I needed to, to literally see myself differently in the mirror. Um, and so it was just a a really skewed time mentally for me. Um, it was really through, um, through friends and the parents of those friends and, um, and then my, my parents got involved and, you know, of course that's when my counseling journey, I would say started. And I was going into 10th grade at that point and still flourishing academically, flourishing with extracurriculars it's like I never put that torch down. It was kind of like, okay, well, this is going to be my, you know, my saving grace here. And this is going to be this here. And I'm going to anchor myself on all these things. But on the inside, I still felt like a, a mess. Um, and so that began the journey. But what that did do was also begin the conversation in my family for, you know, uh-oh, I, I might have a little bit more going on that maybe I got from my dad's side. And so there was a lot of, oh, you're fine. Just get over it. It's not, you didn't, you didn't, you know, inherit depression. You didn't inherit anxiety. And so those were the messages that I was hearing from family. Um, while even while my, feeling it. While feeling it. It was like, well, you're not really feeling that. You're not really, do, you're not really going through that. It's just blank. So it, you know, it could have been, 
oh, you're at a new school or, oh, there's this happening or, oh, it's the, the, the divorce, you know, and I'm thinking, no, it's not that. It's that I'm, I want to just be okay in my own skin. And I feel like I'm in, I used to say, I would feel like I was in a cardboard box and I could not find my way out, you know, and it was just a loneliness and a dark, um, a darkness. And then, you know, I would force myself to say, you know, or, and to put myself out there, whether it's, you know, at school or on the ball field or wherever it was like, no, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to overcome this. Um, and I refused to, you know, to drink it away or to, um, you know, do pills. Like I saw family members do, I'm like, I'm not going there. So, and it was, I took the position of, I'm going to break this cycle and it's, I'm going to be the one that's going to end it. And I'm going to, you know, so by the time I was a senior in high school, you know, I was just determined, like, this is not going to plague me. Nobody really gets it anyway. I really don't have any support. So even if I really wanted to deal with it, I couldn't. Um, and I just kept stuffing it and stuffing it, you know? Um, so that's kind of where it started. Um, I would say, you know, just a kind of a perfect storm of events happening circumstantially and nothing, no kind of compass or any way to deal with that internally. Um, while already feeling like I'm, you know, kind of doing life with a handicap already. It was what it, it's really what it felt like, you know? Right. Yeah. You're expected to perform to these high levels and sounds like academics, sports. Uh, you have younger, younger siblings taking care of like protecting yeah. your siblings from the divorce. Yeah. All these ways that you are the, the caregiver, the caretaker yeah. who's taking care of you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. When, when I hear people talk about, you know, bearing it all down and pushing it down, usually there reaches a point where you just can't push it down anymore and it, it blows up. Did yeah. that, was that the same in your experience? Yes. Um, what was that like? Tragically, actually. Um, so I, when I graduated from college, I went into education and started teaching um, and so as an educator, especially um, in a private school, it was definitely frowned upon. If you had anything wrong with you um, that could be noted, that you, know, you, you definitely didn't bring that to light, you know. Um, as a teacher? As a teacher. Why, as, was, it, why yeah. was it frowned upon? Well, because I was, a, I was an educator of small, uh, I was in second grade and also taught pre-K. So there was this kind of this stigma of, well, if you're taking care of small children and you're not mentally well, then you have no place taking care of small children. Mm. You know, so there was a lot of pressure there to, to to fit the mold of what a teacher is supposed to be. Is she supposed to be able to do everything and wear many, many hats and be underpaid and all the other things? And it's not supposed to affect her, you know, whereas mm. an educator, when you go home, you're you're spent. I mean, it's, if you're if you're in education and you're teaching and, and you're in there because you really care and want to make a difference, it's near impossible not to take your work home with you emotionally right. and mentally, you know? Um, and so you're with, expected not to, well, you're, you are just expected to deal with it and, and not have an issue with it. And it just, just get back in there and do it the next day. And I'm sitting here going, I am more exhausted then, you know, there was a, a level of fatigue that I had hit, which now I know was my depression, um, 
that was making it like I really felt like every day at school I was teaching in a cloud is the best way I can describe it. It was like this fog constantly, almost to a point where it felt surreal. Like, is, is, is this real time or am I like half asleep? Like it was always kind of this blur. And I'm like, this cannot be how other people function in daily life. Like this can't seem normal, you know? Um, so I ended up, um, meeting my husband along the way here in, um, we got, we were engaged. We were both actually teaching at the same school. And, you know, that, that stuffed a lot of, it, it distracted me a lot, I think, you know, in getting married and starting a family and all that. There were those distractions. Um, and then it just kind of, you know, was, I was in such a habit at that point that my mode of operation was denial of myself. So the idea of self-compassion, it, it, by this point in my early 20s, like, well, mid-20s at this point, self-compassion was the last thing that I was, I was, it was even on my radar. It was more of someone else's care trumps my care. Mm. So my self-care is going to sit on the back burner because my students need me, my husband needs me, this needs me, whatever. Um, and so that became an, a, habitual, a habitual way of living. Um, which I think happens for a lot of people. They fall into that trap and think that it'll just go away um, with more, right. with more living, with more life experience or with, with a different job or with a different, um, you know, marital status or relationship status. And it just doesn't, it doesn't. Um, right. So we ended up, uh, started, we started our family and it's pretty much I steadily pregnant in and out of pregnancy, in and out of having babies for at one point eight years straight, and never, wow, never caught that in all that. Even though I had this underlying, you know, I guess predisposition to this depression and anxiety happening, compounded on top of that was uh, postpartum depression. Oh, postpartum, yeah, postpartum, and so you know, the, and it's the the funniest. I, I not ha ha funny, but. When you're in a mode of hiding, it's crazy, I think, what the brain can do. And I, I don't want to use the word crazy because I hate that word. But, um, like, I remember my physician. Baffling. Would, yeah, baffling. When I would go for my um, my postpartum checkups, he would say, so how are you doing? How, how are you feeling? How is your mood? I mean, are you feeling like more – you know, he's asking me all those types of questions to evaluate to see if I was experiencing some – postpartum and I lie through my teeth every time and I was, I'm fine oh no I'm I'm great I'm good I'm just a little more tired but that's because I haven't been sleeping you know and I was making all these excuses because at this point I'm, my load just kept getting heavier and heavier and I had rationalized that well I don't have time at this point in my life with all these responsibilities to just hit the pause button and revert to self-care mode. There's just too much responsibility and not enough time for me. So it's just going to be what it's going to be. If you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for support via live chat. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, please call 911.
Other resources are linked in the show notes. So I didn't, I, I really didn't, I wasn't open to the help at that point. Um, and it wasn't until after my fourth child um, in 2016, she was only about, I think she was about eight months old and I had a severe mental breakdown. Um, and it was, it was pretty traumatic. Um, there, there was a, a definite um, disassociation that had happened uh, cognitively. I had just, I knew now looking back and with a lot of therapy in these last four years, I've come to really understand what happened in that episode. Um, but I had just, for the two weeks prior to that, literally separated from my emotions that I felt nothing. And it was a different, um, it was a different experience than just, you know, standard like depression. It was more, right. I really did feel, I, I would tell my husband, I'm like, I don't, I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything for you. I don't feel anything for my kids. Like I was completely numbed over. Um, I, I didn't realize it at that point, but I hadn't cried in almost a year. Never put, never, ever put that together until wow. after I was in recovery and, you know, was questioned, when's the last time you cried? I'm like, oh my goodness, it's here, you know? So, you know, I think with that, where I was there, I was just so deep in it, so, so deep in it that there was really, um, it was inevitable. You know, this was like a 20 year, I always say it was like a 20 year prison sentence that I feel like I lived. And I finally, you know, my brain just had had it, you know, and I um, can't take it anymore. Couldn't take it anymore. And there was a day um, in the summer of 2016 where um, I'm sorry, 17, not 16. And I pretty much, you know, my husband came home from work and I, I said, I'm leaving. I'm going. And he's like, where are you going? And I'm like, I don't know. And I kissed all my kids goodbye. I kissed him goodbye. And I just told him before I left, I said, you know, well, just so you know, my wedding rings are in the top drawer of the dresser. And he's like, why are you telling me that? And I got in my car that day and I drove and I had every intention of ending my life that day. Um, I was completely, you know, there were no tears. There was no, there was nothing. I was feeling nothing at this point. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't anxious. I was like, you know what? This is how it's going to be. There is no purpose to me being here at this point anymore. I am void of, you know, I felt lifeless. And I was like, you know, I'd rather not live than to feel this way. This is a lonely, you know, place to be that I can't take anymore. Um, and so that was the point that that it really broke for me. And it's crazy. I'm, I'm sorry, I keep using that word. It's 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 interesting how when <laughs> I'm very grateful. Let me just say this: to have had that experience interrupted. Um, I was driving and I literally got stuck in traffic at a four-way stop in the middle of the, this rural area that honestly do, I do not know to this day how I got myself there. I was stuck in traffic huh. and something, you know, in me was like, just, just turn off. And there was this little gravel road and I turned off to kind of catch my breath to just to check myself. And, you know, am I really going to do this today? Am I really, is this really happening? And I remember my thought in that moment when I looked down was, well, nobody sees me. Nobody has ever seen me. I just want to be seen. That's what I was feeling in that moment. Right. And I looked up and there was 
this field in front of me with these horses. And this one horse had lifted her head and locked eyes with me and did not look away. And I just remember it felt, and my psychiatrist tells me all the time, she's like, that was your aha moment, you know, where it felt like the, it was a glass ceiling that just shattered. And all of a sudden I was, I was, I was with it again. And I burst into tears. I remember I had this, this really, um, aggressive kind of, um, physiological response. You know, I got really nauseous. I was, um, really weak and lightheaded and really thirsty and like all these things were happening. And I knew I am really sick. I felt at this point, I'm not well. And, you know, I recognized kind of where I was. And, and at this point I'm going, how did I get here? And so I made my way back to, you know, to my husband and to our home. And he was waiting for me outside. I had left my cell phone. So he had no way to find me. Oh, geez. Yeah. And so he was waiting for me and I hadn't even, I didn't even have to get out the car. I mean, he knew. And, um, the first thing he told me when he, you know, gave me a hug, he said, you ready to get some help now? And I'm like, I am. So we called, um, we called a therapy center immediately, um, within like 20 minutes and did an intake. Um, and they assessed, you know, they're like, listen, you're kind of in that triage you know, place right now. And, um, so, you know, we went through all the, the protocol to get, you know, stable, you know, the stable space and safe place for me. And, um, I eventually went into, you know, some, some rehab and, you know, that was the life changing curve in the road for me where it really became impossible for everybody in my life up to that point to deny that, there was not something going on, you know, right. I was kind of like, Hey, you believe me now? Like, this is what I've been trying to tell you. And, and I'm not by any way, shape or form, like blaming anybody in my life. Cause I really am in a place of full acceptance with that. But, um, it was eye opening for all of us. It was, you know, I had to leave my eight month old to go into recovery. That was hard. Um, that meant that my sure. parents had to step in and help, you know, with childcare and they knew this is a life or death time. And it's either I do what I need to do to take, to take care of myself or my kids, you know, maybe shortchanged a mother at some point. And so, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey since 2017 and it's been, you know, I would never want to wish that moment or that experience or that journey when, for anyone. But I will say that, Coming on the other side of it, I have never in my life felt more alive and free because I've, I've embraced that that is how I am made, you know, and, and this is how my brain functions and, and there is nothing wrong with how my brain functions. It's just that my brain functions in a different, in a different way and it's okay. It just needs a little bit of extra attention and this is how we're going to give it that attention. And it just made it, it changed everything, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I wish it didn't take, it wouldn't have taken that long, you know, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, like what you guys are doing here. I mean, it's, it's scary to have the conversation, you know, with people that you love and it's even scarier when you try to have the conversation and it's not received, you right. know, then you're like, it's already hard enough 
to <sighs> work up the courage to talk about that, much yeah. less to have it disregarded. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. I'm so glad too. you didn't. Yeah. No, right? I celebrate that all the time. I think, um, sorry, let me just I get that pulled up. Awesome. So um, I think you, you've, you've touched on it a lot already. You've mentioned it. But just to dive in a little deeper, I'm curious, what were some of the beliefs you had specifically a little more in depth about, about why, you know, you didn't feel you had, I'm trying to find the words, sorry, <laughs> why, why you didn't feel you had to deal with what was going on and just kind of push through and, and keep, mm -hmm. what were some of the beliefs you had? Um, I would say that one of the big ones was I had given it all, like I had given it my best effort um, and I felt like I had for so long, I gave it all I had to battle and overcome and that my strength was just done. So when I got into the end, it was, I am not strong. These are my, this is, this is what I was telling myself. I'm not strong enough to continue doing this like this. So there was um, definitely a core belief going on that I didn't have what it was going to take to sustain, you know, um, and, in, and endure this. And that um, knowing really well that it was getting worse, you know. And the other thing oh, for sure uh, was I don't matter enough. That was another one. I don't matter enough. Um, and then, of course, one of the things that had come out in therapy, which was really, really um, healing, was um, if I get help, well, everyone's going to see me as damaged goods after anyway. It's easier to like, hide. Oh, this is the person who had to get therapy. This is the, I see what you mean. Yeah. So it was kind of like, well, it's easier to hide than to own where I'm at and risk the rejection piece um, because of the stigmas, you know, with all this. And I don't understand honestly why it has gotten, you know, to be so stigmatized because it's, it's just like anything else. Any other part of our body that's sick, we tend to it, you know, but I, right. um, yeah. I was convinced that there was no option to wave a white flag and really, um, kind of surrender to, to getting some help or anything because it wasn't, it was only going to make it worse. In my mind, I thought, and I had truly believed this is just going to make it worse. I'm not going to be seen for the person I'm seen as now. So I don't want to mess that up. I'd rather just not even be here. You know, I would rather go out like I am than have to injure the rejection. And when people really know where I'm at. Um, so it was a fear of, being alone afterwards, the fear of losing, you know, all that I gained professionally, um, you know, how would, how would those relationships change? You know, um, parents of, of children, I had, at this point I had moved up to high school education. So, I mean, you, I had young people that were now young adults getting, you know, starting their lives and still looking up to me like, Oh, they have it together. And, you know, and I'm on the inside going, no, I don't, don't, you know, please don't put me on that platform, you know? Um, yeah. So I would say, you know, the, 
I wasn't the stereo, I guess, I don't know. There's all different types of stereotypes, I think, when it comes to mental health. But I wasn't never the type of kid to stay in my room and play, you know, play games and just kind of, you know, kind of in this dark kind of um, isolating space. I was the one that was kind like, of detached. yeah, like, let's get out there. Let's do this. Let's just, let's just do life and, and do it 150% and that'll just fix everything. Um, so I think that it's very important to, you know, look at the people in our lives that do seem like they have it all together and that they can pretty much take on the world. Um, because a lot of times those are the ones that are barely holding it all together, you know? Um, you know, so it's safe to check in with them and it's been, I'm not sure this is kind of like preaching to the choir for you, but when you open up that dialogue, it's amazing that, the difference it makes for other people and the freedom and, and permission that it gives others to open up as well, you know? And so whenever, um, when I was asked to, to sit with you and visit with you about this, I mean, it's nothing I want to go back and revisit in my head for sure, you know, and it's nothing right. that, but at the same time, it's, if it allows somebody else the, the freedom, you know, and it gives them the courage to say, I really need to have that conversation you know, and I really need to, to, to be open and say this. It, it could, it literally could save somebody's life. Absolutely. I mean, just thinking back, if you think back through your story. Um, I mean, what's in the past is in the past, but it's like, if you had heard someone who was just completely forthright and open about, you know, how could that have changed the trajectory of your story? Totally. Totally. Um, just even creating that space. Yeah. It's hugely powerful because it's validating first of what you're going through and then it leaves open the possibility of, Oh, maybe there's an option to get help for this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think very you know important to kind of note too, that a lot of what I experienced, I think stem from trust, trust issues and lack of trust that I had for people in general, you know, because I kind of just going through life, not knowing when the next shoe was going to drop. So it was, you know, and, and really, because, you know, my parents and my family, they were all doing their own thing. They were all trying to make it and survive themselves. So it became my responsibility to kind of just deal on my own and figure out how to do that by myself. So I I didn't really develop the ability to trust easy. And, you know, was, I can rely on me, myself and I, and that's it. I don't need anybody. That was kind of my thought process, you know. Um, and then when you get to the point where you're like, no, I can't can't really count on myself anymore. <laughs> like, you know, I can't trust my own judgment anymore. And that's, that's not happening. So when I went into rehab, I actually did um, equine assisted psychotherapy. And it was interesting because when I called the, the therapy, you know, the rehab center, they were like, listen, being that your story involved, you know, that you were noticed in something that wasn't human. Um, maybe this would work. And so we, we gave it a shot and it was, it was incredible. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear it. It worked for you. Yeah. Well, it was because it crossed the barrier of, you know, an animal had not hurt me the way that, or had misguided me or what had abandoned me or neglected me. It was that this animal was just in its rawest form, completely present 
completely responsive to whatever I'm doing or whatever, you know, it's sensing from me and that I'm open to. You know, at that point I was like, yeah, I want help, but I don't want somebody talking at me. I don't want somebody trying to tell me how I'm supposed to be feeling instead. (laughs) I don't want that. Like I know what's going on in my head. Like I don't, you know, and, and I I mean, unless you plan on hitting the easy button to fix me, I mean, this isn't going to work if I have to sit and just do talk therapy. And so that was really groundbreaking for me. Um, Right. And and especially because your turning point was like that horse looking at you. So kind of like looping it all back together. It all came back together. It was really, really neat. So um, it was one of those alternative measures that um, I think, you know, if if more people knew that there were other options, when you're dealing with mental health, there isn't just one way to seek recovery um, or to seek, you know, help with it. There's so much out there now that is available to us that just, that wasn't even in in the picture 10 years ago, even, you know? Right. so it gives you hope that, okay, if this method doesn't work, then maybe this would work instead, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because there really isn't a, there isn't a one size fits all. It yeah. is just, you know, everybody kind of has their own, something that'll work for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what worked for you is amazing. That is yeah. awesome. Thank you. I think you've mentioned everything, everything else I had on the list already. Um, but my last question was how can people like you and I help advocate for others who are going through these things? Hmm. I think that it is all about our presence. I really believe that the more that we can encourage, um, encourage the feeling of a safe space for anybody. Um, and the more of us that do do that, our presence speaks volumes to people. And I know that in the case of anybody who is dealing with mental health, a lot of times the first encounter that they have with someone is with that person's presence. It's not with their words. And if the presence is a turnoff, then it's an automatic shutdown. I know it was for me, you know, and, and I felt like there were there. I did not have anybody in my life that I felt was approachable to even scratch the surface of being able to say, Hey, can, can you help me? You know? And so I think it starts there. I think it starts with, um, allowing people the safety of knowing that whatever they, wherever they are is, um, it doesn't make them damaged that it's, it's okay, you know, really to not be okay. Um, And the more and more that that message comes through, you know, across the board publicly, I think it it naturally allows people to come out and say, yeah, because if we don't do that, the suicide rate will continue to go up Um, because of those that are in hiding with it for whatever reason. um, And typically with, uh, you know, with depression, especially, that's kind of what we do is hide. You know, it's what it naturally, you know, compels us to do. Right. is to retreat and go in, you know? Um, so for those of us hiding, you know, unless somebody, I remember just thinking in my head how much I wish somebody would have just reached a hand out and pulled me out the water. 
And I, I didn't even need somebody to say that they knew what it was going to take to make me well. I just would have given anything to, to have a hand to just pull me up so I could get, you know, get a breath in. You just wanted to be seen. I just wanted to be seen. And that goes back to the presence, you know, and, and I think the dismissiveness um, that I had experienced, not intentionally by the people that love me, but just because that's what, that's how we lived. You dismiss that kind of those things, you know really, really facilitated um, that downward spiral for me. And so I think the more that we validate those that we love with just, you know, and look, I mean, I have people in my life right now that, um, you know, parents of students and and things that'll come to me and, and they're definitely, they're very colorful people, you know, and (laughs) they, they come to me and it's, um, you know, I remember a time in my life where I probably was putting up a, a, a facade of, okay, well, you can approach me if, you know, um, I, I guess I was known as, oh, she's the conservative Christian mom, wife, teacher, goody, goody, you know, label, 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 label. And so I wasn't very approachable at one point in my life, you know, and now on this side of it, I am just so grateful for life. I could care less what what color somebody comes to me with or what they're dealing with because I'm going, this is human. Like I feel like we need to connect on a human level before any conversation can happen. And that that happens with the first glance that we give somebody when they walk in the room, you know? Um, right. to just let them, you know, know with our own body language that they matter you know, and that we see them in the space. So it's, it's not rocket science if you ask me, but. <laughs> no, I agree. It's not. People treat it that way, but it's really, it's really not pretty simple way. at the heart of it. Right. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and for being willing to come on here and, and advocate in a way that will help other people feel heard and seen. Um, yeah, you have so much courage and eloquence. Thank you for you told your story well too. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, was there anything else you wanted to, to talk about or touch on before we wrap I'll up for just, today? No, I would just say, you know, the 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 part that um like I think gave me the the courage and the, you know, to say yes to this conversation today was really because um in our country right now, educators are going through a really hard time. There's a lot going on in the field of education that is trying. Um, and there's just with the pandemic and everything. And, and there are a lot of teachers that um, are to really trying to keep it all together, you know, and really do love and care for their students. And we are of the industry that usually people overlook when you think of mental health um, challenges. We're not typically the ones that, that you would say, Oh yeah, well, let me go check on that teacher down there see how she's doing mentally, you know? Um, but we are kind of, you know, we're on the front lines right now with the kids and, and everything that they're enduring. Um, so I would just say, you know, to not overlook and, and stigma, you know, have that stigma for educators that we got it all together, you know? 
there's a lot riding on our shoulders and, um, and a lot of responsibility and weight there. And so, you know, that's just an industry that I wish personally were, was, was some stigmas could get lifted, um, there, you know, so that's kind Absolutely. of what, yeah. Check in on yeah. the, the caregivers who are yeah giving yeah. us care. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I, I thank you for having me and for helping me to feel so comfortable to do this. Cause you know, it's not easy to talk it's about. It's not. Um, yeah, of course. You're so welcome. I'm happy to, happy to listen. This is Unsilent. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was hosted and produced by me, Eli Lawson, Lance Bordalone, John Panacucci, and the rest of the incredible No Stigmas marketing team. Special thanks to Ashley for sharing her story this week and being a voice for teachers across the world. To go beyond the show, connect with us on social media or visit nostigmas.org to learn more about mental health topics. Please leave us a five-star review and share with others wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. New episodes of Unsilent come out every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And finally, remember that whatever you're going through, you don't have to do it alone. Be Unsilent. We'll see you next week.